Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shame Core Records. Here's where it becomes interesting, and a little more personal, too. Like I said before, so long as you don't swear or talk about sex or drugs, you can say pretty much whatever you want in Christian hardcore. Like Dr. Harrison said before, honesty and authenticity were the ethos of this genre. And because of the transparency, as we start to pay attention to the lyrics, we start to get a sense of what the internal life was like for those who grew up in the evangelical church or who spent a lot of time there. Now let's look at this band under oath, perhaps the most successful Christian hardcore band ever. They were the ones with that gold record. One of their early albums was called The Changing of Times, and it was my favorite album when I was 16 years old. One of my favorite songs on the album was called Never Meant to Break Your Heart. The vocalist spends most of the song lamenting over the fact that he keeps sinning, something I related to deeply as a 16-year-old boy hitting adolescence right at the advent of internet pornography. Sick from the mirror. But to be clear, even though porn and masturbation come up repeatedly in this episode, that's just the easiest stand-in. The truth is, in my evangelical upbringing, any sin, especially if done repeatedly, could cause problems in your relationship with God. Sexual sin just got extra emphasis. Eventually, at the end of the song, he asks God to hold me close, wash my mind, destroy the me that lives inside. This reminds me of a version of the gospel I heard when I was a child. I was told that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. This was a simple enough way to explain a big theological term like imputed righteousness. And while it was intended to be a comfort, it meant that God didn't actually like me, the person behind the Jesus mask. In fact, God was so disgusted with me that putting a Jesus disguise on was the only way that this could work. And to have someone know you so deeply, more than anyone else in the world, to have someone see the true you and be disgusted, that is a deep experience of shame. We're so defaced and so debased that God finds us thoroughly unpleasing when it comes to a personal relationship. John Piper is a reformed pastor in Minneapolis. For three years, I lived right across the freeway from his church, Bethlehem Baptist. 
You might know him as the author of Desiring God, or simply a well-known pastor, a common name in most evangelical circles. Once, someone asked him if God likes us, and his response was that we are so disgusting to God, God finds us thoroughly unpleasing when it comes to a personal relationship. But here's the amazing thing. When God saves us, he begins a work of transformation that restores aspects of our personhood which are delightful to him, pleasing to him, which he genuinely likes about us. God delights in, is pleased by, what we are becoming in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this part, it might sound like good news, but what does it actually mean? God doesn't actually like me God likes when I change. God has to make me into someone who is likable. You might say sanctification is God making us likable. Sanctification is God making me likable. This makes me think about what I heard from Mr. Rogers as a kid and how different it is. I like you just the way you are. I mean, isn't that what we'd love to hear from God? I like you just as you are. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But that's not how God feels about you, according to Piper anyway. So if God likes me when I become more holy, which is not an idea unique to Piper by any means, what happens when I can't seem to change? What if I never have a shot at looking anything like Jesus? How do I get God to like me then? I talked about this holiness part with my friend Heather Patton Griffin. She's about to graduate with a Master's of Theological Studies at Duke Divinity. There's so many contortions that people get themselves into theologically because they think they're being faithful to to God. We were just meeting on Zoom to talk psychology and theology, and I asked her, hey, can we hit record on this call? I told her I had a sense I might want to share some of this on this podcast, and she said that was fine. I think of the standard like example of, of men's accountability groups where they're constantly talking about their pornography and masturbation addictions. Uh-huh. And, and their model of how they read Romans 7 is, I'm just going to hate myself and assent to the true thing for yeah. long. And if it never changes, I will still get to heaven because I agree with God's word that my sin is evil. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a misreading and it torments people. You hear an angry voice every time you read scripture because Paul is mad at you, but Jesus loves you. But Paul is mad at you because you won't let Jesus love you. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. It, it makes them stay in a type of bondage that God does not want them to stay in. In Paul's terms, God loved us before the foundation of the world. God knew who we are already. So it's not, it's not you're bad, let's do invasion of the body snatchers. And she just comes into my heart and takes over, and now I'm a Jesus bod person. <laughs> right, yeah. That's not what it means to be clothed with Christ, kids. <laughs> And I think you've had this experience when in therapy you're seeing people grow and mature. Is it's it's like recognizing something that was always there. Yeah, and that doesn't come through self hatred. No, right. no. I mean that's that will that will kill people. 
for the record, neither of us are saying that compulsive sexual behavior isn't a problem. It's just that continually beating ourselves up doesn't actually seem to help. It's so sad because people do that because they think that that's what God wants of them. Mm-hmm. And they are just trying to be faithful in the best ways they know how. That seems to be what scripture sounds like to them. It's what everybody that taught them right. <laughs> unintentionally is passing on. But that's not how Jesus talks to us. And we can see the fruit, like this is clearly not working. So they're afraid if they don't do that, that they will just backslide. And of course, everything that is actually driving these addictions and compulsions, you know, that's undealt with. And so Jesus wants to bring reconciliation to all of these parts of us. So if we are damning to hell, you know, all these parts of us that want bad things and just like, these are bad. You know, we're actually killing parts of ourselves that God made us to have. And these parts are deceived. They're enslaved. But he wants us to put to death this old way of ordering them and this old way of submitting to those parts. But he doesn't want to kill what he made before the foundation of the world to be in eternal fellowship with the loving God. If you've been given this idea that you have to change and continue to change to get God to like you and want to be close to you, it only makes sense that when you can't change, that you would end up hating yourself for it. It's like what the vocalist of Under Oath said, hold me close, wash my mind, destroy the me that lives inside. If I'm going to get close to God, I have to cease to exist. Which meant to me as a 16-year-old struggling with all sorts of things that there was no love or affection for the Crispin that existed then. Only for this future version of myself that looked like Jesus. And 16-year-old me needed a lot of love and affection, even though I looked nothing like Jesus. I needed to know that God liked me. But I was trying so hard to be holy, and I couldn't be holy enough So my next best strategy was to hate the unholy parts of myself. And for some of us, it feels like unholiness is all there is inside. We end up doing this emotional and spiritual violence to ourselves that only makes it all worse. But like Heather said, this is the message we've gotten from many of our church communities. We want to follow God and we feel like this is the way we do it. So let's go back to that album I loved so much from Under Oath. The last song on the album ends with this crescendo, punctuated by this simple line. God take me because I hate me. Now, I told you at the start that this music was dramatic, but we can't write it off so easily. This was Christian music. This is what was going on in the church's basement. And these messages and these lyrics resonated deeply with so many of us. And this idea of holiness, that God doesn't delight in us, but in our change, this is where this concept of holiness leads us. 
Okay, so this season has been heavier in a certain way, and you might be missing some of the banter that's typical for DL and me. If that's the case, I wanted to tell you about another area code show called Comedy Has an Ouchie. There's three comedians from the Chicago area talking about what's wrong with comedy in the U.S. Here's a short clip from an episode called Comedy's Problems Are Rooted in White Supremacy. We have a, an archive of racist stuff. Do we feel like those should still be accessible? Like, a, here's where we were as a society? Or do you think they should be scratched and not be remembered? It should still be accessible. We should be talking about it. We should yep. be like, and this is why this sketch was wrong. But in the time, this is why that sketch was put up. Let's move forward and do better. Okay, you kind of like shifted how I think about things, but with that statement. Because then they'll rewrite, rewrite, rewrite Rewrite it. They're going to rewrite it. They're going to (laughs) rewrite history to make it seem like they've always been an ally. It's like, what are you talking about? I have never thought about it that way, Felicia. Yes. Yeah. You can find episodes of Comedy Has an Ouchie anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, Kristen. It's me, Zeg Bar 36, Portland, Oregon. To me, Christian hardcore was about subculture. Every kid needs a subculture, and hardcore was mine. It was lyrically dense and oftentimes poetic, and the place that was safe to explore basically every topic that you'd want to write about. There were not a lot of topics that hit as close to home as shame. So I think that's what you have in Christian Hardcore is a lot of young men standing around in the dark listening to people scream about the issues that they're dealing with inside that are hidden issues. And it's really about bold expression and catharsis, both for the singers and the musicians in the band, as well as the audience, mostly suburban white guys. So you had this subculture that was a safe place, and you also had this kind of cathartic art that was helping us to you know work out what we believed and how we were feeling without having therapy we definitely needed therapy or some sort of support to work through all this we had a picture of a god who demanded that we become holy before coming close so if you want to be close to god you have two options continually work hard to become holy, which is exhausting, or acknowledge that you can't be holy enough and then hate yourself for it. But I was introduced to a book about five years ago that really helped me begin to believe that God might like me in the day-to-day of this life, not just waiting for me to change into someone holier. It's called In the Shelter, and it's written by an Irish poet and theologian named Padraig Otuma. I emailed Podrig to ask for an interview for this episode. He said he didn't know anything about hardcore music, but that he, and I'm quoting here, certainly did know about the charismatic obsession with ridding yourself of everything, of coming close to hating yourself. So needless to say, I was very excited to talk with him about this holiness teaching and the idea of God being uninterested in us until we look just like Jesus. <laughs> Although I have gone through holiness check sheets, far too many of them in my life, I don't do those anymore. But as a young man, we were told to fill in holiness check sheets on a regular basis and compare it to the holiness check sheet of the month before. What is a holiness check sheet? I will send you a holiness check sheet if <laughs> okay. you wish. I mean, it was a thing like, um, have you used expletives in the last month? Have you used any expletives that start with G, J and C? You know, mm. that they basically said, like, if you say gosh, it's a substitute for 
um, God or if you say, oh, Jesus, it's a substitute for Jesus as a kind of a, an expletive. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the, the ultimate aim to the whole thing was have you masturbated? I mean, that was absolutely the primary aim about the, and the obsession with holiness was being measured in the question as to whether you've masturbated or not. Um, all of which was kind of um, paying no attention whatsoever to have you been checking, you know, where your foods come from? Mm-hmm. You know, have you been thinking about, you know, have you been voting? Have you been participating in supremacy? <laughs> have you been checking the way that you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I don't mind a holiness check sheet. I just think that masturbation gets given a bad name. <laughs> I asked him about this idea of getting closer to God through becoming more holy which is such a common way of talking about closeness to God in the church. I'm fairly uninterested in being close to God um, because I know loads of people who would say they're close to God and they're total assholes. (laughs) And so the question for me is, what's the quality of the life being lived? And how can we say that is that of God? Mm. And I think not that I'm interested in needing to justify things by scriptures, but um, in case anybody would hear that and go, oh God, clearly a Catholic, you know, by works, you know, there's that text that speaks about they'll know you are Christians by your love. And that, I think, is a demonstration of early people in the Christian communities who were aware that if we have anything to say, actually, we need to demonstrate it and then say it. And that the correlation between what you do and what you say you believe is profound and will be lived in the accountability of the observed moment. I think that's wonderful to think about in, in, in those terms. It's very a very different paradigm than the holiness check sheets. <laughs> I'm looking forward to sending you one, Christian. You'll love it. Yeah. Don't fill it in and send it back to me, though, because I won't want to hold you accountable. <laughs> Find your own accountability. <laughs> All right. There's this quote that I grew up with hearing often from Max Licato. I would often hear this quote from him, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. I wonder how that lands with you. I don't know that the point is to be just like Jesus. I think the point is to be just like yourself and with an understanding that somehow if there is an understanding of God and that each human person is created in the image of God, that each human person is created to correspond with their individuality and their participation in community with an intrinsic dignity that they have. I don't want everybody to be like Jesus. Jesus would have been a frustrating friend to have had and a frustrating family member. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for Mary. My God, I think he would have been a troublesome son. So I... I suppose the implication that God wants us all to be just like Jesus kind of implies a trajectory that can be plotted out. When I think when you look at the cast of characters of the the Gospels, even, you know, you've got John the Baptist. You've got that Syrophoenician woman who challenged Jesus. She wasn't being just like Jesus. She was being just like herself, a mother who was desperate for the devil to be taken from her daughter. Um I think of Mary of Magdala and I think of her capacity to be just like herself, a generous woman mm. who had been castigated by many and since also, and who nonetheless continued even after the death of somebody who she loved. So I think of the 
much more difficult thing is not to be just like Jesus, but to find a way where you can continue to practice the muscle of being just like yourself and hopefully an improved version of yourself. That is paying attention to the questions of justice, to the questions of love, of giftedness and creativity too, and holding all those things within the um, circumstances of your life. I think that's even going back to this idea of getting rid of myself or, you know, fundamentally changing. It's because we want to belong with God. Um, and I'll talk later in the series about this idea of uh, this idea that we are born fundamentally not belonging with God. So don't worry, we'll, we'll uh, cover that later. But you talked about Augustine. And I don't know if I'm saying it right. Oh, I'm never sure either. Augustine or Augustine. I mean, he was North African, so presumably he had his own way of saying his name, um, writing in Latin. Um, so I, I've had various crises in my life. And during one crisis, um, I, I had the book of the Confessions of Augustine. My father loves it. My father loves the book of Job and the Confessions of Augustine. So... Um, says I, a lot about him as a person. I'm not does. sure what, but it does. Oh, no, it says loveliness about my dad. Yeah, he's a lovely yeah. man. Um, and Augustine's confession is in, I'm going to get it wrong now, 10 or 12 books. And I mean, the, the entire collection is, you know, maybe 300 pages. And the chapters are sometimes only a paragraph. So um, for a year, I'd read through a few of the chapters, and that might only be a few pages. And then I'd write a response back to Augustine. I had read the full text before, but this was not reading. This was a conversation with Augustine. And it became such a bam during a terrible year, a really difficult, difficult year. I was trying to come out really, even though I didn't really know what was happening. Um, I'd always known I was gay, but I knew at this stage that to come out would be to fundamentally alter my relationship with the question of who I was working for. Because um, then and still... Youth with a Mission is not a place that was interested in even conversations about levels of inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual or trans people. So um, I came across this phrase in Augustine because um, he speaks about the heart in a way over and over again. And Augustine's understanding of the heart sometimes, like the Bible, speaks about the heart as wicked and other times speaks about the heart as the place where God lives, the place of deepest vocation. And kind of in a way of self-lamentation, he has this, what is a very well-known phrase, late, O late, have I loved you, beauty ever ancient and ever new. You were within me, but I was in the world outside myself. And then I'm, I'm kind of appropriating this now, I'm not quoting directly, but he says things like, you called for me, you pleaded me, you drew me back to myself. And now I hunger and I thirst for you. And for Augustine, the journey back to self was actually a journey away from distraction, a journey away from following along what the fads of the day was, because Augustine was a very addictive character. He found all kinds of addictions in his life, sex and the theatre and acclaim and publishing and ex all these kinds of things. Um, but he understood that he was being drawn back to himself and I found that deeply moving to have this connection with a character 1600 years older than me. I found like, despite the differences in culture and the, and, you know, I mean, 
the differences are so long you could fill a book with the differences between you know a person reading today and the time of augustine it was his understanding of the heart and the journey back to the heart to your essential self moved me profoundly and um changed me and part of what i find that admirable in augustine is not in his character but in the fact that he was wrestling with his own character because um, he had a partner with whom he had a child. And when he began to move toward conversion, he realized that this, because they weren't married, he understood in himself that, actually, I think he was wrong. He decided that that was a wrong relationship. I want to put it all on him. And then he just got a concubine, you know, because he wanted sex. But he's just like, well, let me therefore be with somebody with whom I'm not going to be committed just for the purposes of sex. And I think that that was a terrible sin against the woman um, who it's, you know, she might have loved him. You know, it might have been a good relationship. But suddenly the invasion of this particular puritanical version of his understanding meant that he actually wasn't moving further towards love. He was moving, moving further away from it by the way that he treated her. So, but he narrates that. And I think it's it has a vulnerability in it. And I find him a very sympathetic character because he is so flawed. Um, and because I don't think he's holding himself up as a model, he's saying, here is my confession. And he's offering it in a way that made me feel like, well, I can give my confession to you. And I did for that year, reading a couple of chapters every day and then writing a letter, sometimes a letter of fury back to him. And I keep those letters with great tenderness. They're very private. Thank you for sharing that little bit of your story. After I'd finished with Augustine, I moved on to Mother Julian of Norwich, um, who is one of the earliest writers in the English language. And at one point, one of her showings, she imagines God and God's hand with this tiny little thing in it, do you know. Um, and she she calls it a nut. <laughs> and God's kind of turning it around and looking at it with curiosity, but he isn't overly concerned about it. And she says, this is our sin. And within the context of medieval theology, and often we'd be told, sometimes when I was, you know, drowning in an evangelicalism that I wasn't part of, but that was nonetheless influential over me, um, you know, you're being told, oh, the medieval times are really heavy. You go, actually, this time is fucking awful. And I really like that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> in your book, you wrote, in order to make sense of ourselves, we need to reckon with the powerful possibility that ourselves are of value and not just for a distant redeemed potential. And that really resonated with me because I always, uh, I grew up with this feeling of like, God loves me for the person that I will be once I'm made perfect in heaven, right? This like in a twinkling of an eye, you know, I'll, I'll be changed into this, but it actually creates shame then because I have to live with the self that I am today for the rest of my life before God actually likes me. It's kind of like God is keeping me around for my future potential. And so I wonder what are the ways that you see that idea of causing problems in people's spiritual lives? Um, so I've never been an evangelical, even though I did work with evangelicals for a very long time in a in Youth with a Mission, uh, a mostly evangelical organization. Um, uh, so I have been around a lot of evangelicals, and I suppose I was really influenced in my teens um, by this idea that there was a perfection that you needed to arrive at, or at least a measure of perfection 
that unless you arrived at, you were not just failing, but a, an existential failure. And that kind of anthropology is very low church, not very Catholic, I don't think, having studied it. And it is a, I think, both damaging and boring as an understanding of the human person. Um, and one time I was talking about how burdened I was because I think ultimately I had an intellectual objection to what I was suffusing myself in, but I didn't have the intellectual confidence to say, I think this is damaging. So I, yeah, I felt bad, but I also had things to say. Anyway, I was talking about it um, with, uh, after one of those prayer times where, you know, anybody who's struggling with their faith puts their hand up and, you know, you're, it wasn't quite give your heart back to Jesus. It was more subtle than that. But it, I did feel like, oh God, here I am again. And I was describing all of this to this lovely man. And in the middle of it, he said, I like you. Because I said something that he found funny while I was describing it. And I remember saying, what? And he had a lovely steady gaze about him. He said, I like you. You're funny. And I forgot everything I was thinking about. He brought me into this moment of going, I'm liked. And I don't think he was trying to do a theological intervention. I think he was just being himself. And and had he explained this to say, I said this because I don't want you to be worried about your future redeemed self. That Had he explained it as a tactic, I would have probably just thought, actually, now I'm really bored and patronized. But it wasn't a tactic. He was in the moment and I wasn't present to myself at all. And he brought me back to myself and thought, that's so nice. And suddenly I wanted to talk to him about him. And we had this magnificent conversation about, he asked me if I spoke Irish and I said I did. He was a Protestant from the North and he spoke about how he'd had this deep sadness that as a Northern Protestant at the age he was, that he had never had access to learning Irish or access to Gaelic games. And so we had this conversation about culture and I have never forgotten him. And I, it's almost 30 years since that little moment, I saw him once or twice again, never had a further conversation, but always knew that he was an experience of benevolence and beatitude. And I have carried the kindness of him with me for a long time. And I think he interrupted an anxiety that was only ever going to be an anxiety with an experience of human connection. There are so many parts of life we already feel like we're not measuring up in. So many ways we feel evaluated by others and ourselves, and then it feels just the same with God. But really, we need a God who likes us in our uniqueness, who interrupts our constant self-evaluation that's always asking if we're good enough. Theologian James Allison calls this the gentle power of being liked by God. But in many traditions, we've been told that we are constantly evaluated by God and found to be completely defective. But we'll tackle that next time. We'll also talk about a well-known, well-loved Christian hardcore band. All right, everybody. We have returned. My next guests are from Stockholm, Sweden. They're here tonight with a song from their brand new album, Silence. Please welcome Blindside. And yes, that is the voice of Conan O'Brien. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. 
You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find all the links to those in the description of this episode. You can support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. We've talked about things like Brio Magazine, WoW 1999, and a lot of other throwbacks to evangelical culture. Deal's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening.